This past 12 weeks or so, we have been in our Sunday morning services together thinking about how we live practically as Christians. We've been uh, following a little how-to guide. We've thought about how to find purpose in life, how to deal with disappointment, how to get along with others, how to avoid conflict, uh, how to uh, not be offended. We've thought about a range of different subjects. And, uh, and, in, and in many ways, it's been a very kind of practical recovery or, or, or return to thinking a bit about the basics of Christian discipleship and how we live. And uh, today, um, in this final talk in the series, uh, I want to talk about a topic which is definitely not mentioned explicitly in the Bible, uh, but one which is where a great deal of our everyday lives is played out and a great deal of our practical discipleship actually occurs. Uh, And so the title today is How to Engage on Social Media. Um, And so, of course, we must remember that Jesus knew nothing of Twitter or Facebook or the Gram. Um, But social media is all about how we communicate with one another, how we build and foster and um, develop our relationships. And Jesus had plenty to teach us about all of those things. So the way that I want us to think about it is just to think a bit about some of the positives, about some of the challenges, and to think about what this passage, these words that Rob has just read for us from 1 Corinthians 13, how they might encourage us to conduct ourselves as Christians when we are communicating in the world of social media and through those uh, digital forums. So let's pray that God would be with us as we are listening to him and learning from him. Father, when we consider this question of how to engage on social media, what we know we are really considering is how to speak with one another, how to communicate with one another, and for us, how to communicate your love uh, in gracious and um, winsome ways. Lord, we pray that you would help us to uh, find insight from your word, from scripture, that would give us moments to reflect and consider a little bit more about how we speak uh, and how we reflect your love in the world. So be with us, we pray, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) The world has been made smaller in the last 50 years or so, perhaps even slightly more than 50 years. Uh, Developments in transportation, uh, developments in um, global shipping, uh, in the capacity for populations to migrate and to move throughout the 20th century have developed and made the world seem a little smaller easier uh, because of airplane travel, because of uh, train travel, because of all kinds of other things, to be able to go and visit other parts of the world and other peoples and other places. And this has been sort of exponentially increased in the last 30, 40 years or so by the development of digital communication media. The internet, the World Wide Web, of course, but also telephone lines and um, broadcast television and being able to relay pictures and images and events all around the world. And in this last 15 years, 16 years, another exponential increase in uh, the shrinking of the world uh, and, and, the, and the capacity, uh, the, the increased capacity for global communications through the advent of social media. Uh, now, 
I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hands to show just how old they are uh, like you do. You know, you do those forms where it says, what age bracket are you in? Um, quite a lot of the age brackets, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a bridge, there's a, there's a window between 44 and 45. So I've got about three more months, four more months in one of the brackets before I tip into the next one. But we're not going to do that. But it is interesting, isn't it? For most of us who are adults, certainly if we are in our 40s or beyond, um, 15 years is not very much. Facebook arrived on these shores in 2006. It was restricted uh, in its origins to people who held an Oxford or a Cambridge university email address. Did you know that? When Facebook first launched in this country, it, was, it had come over from uh, Harvard, from Boston, and it was principally a, a, a communications tool for university students to use uh, to, to form gatherings and groups and to communicate with one another. So when it was first launched, it was only available if you had an Oxford or a Cambridge university email address. In 2006, I happened to have a Cambridge University email address. And so I was signed up to Facebook within a month of it launching uh, on these shores. Uh, of course, it has rapidly expanded. And, uh, and, and I'll give you some stats in a little while about the reach of different social media platforms and the like. But it is interesting to think that when it launched, it was quite a niche idea about just dealing with one particular demographic, university students, uh, before this spread and this growth uh, took off and went everywhere. What did it do? It made the world smaller. It enabled us to make more connections. And actually, I was very mindful as I was thinking about uh, what I wanted to say today, that I didn't want to talk too much about the negatives around social media, because I think most of us are aware of some of the negatives and some of the challenges. I will highlight a few of them. But actually, there are lots of positive things about social media. And we have enjoyed over the last 15, 16 years on Facebook and then Twitter and to some extent Instagram, but I've kind of given up really after that. Um, the capacity to maintain and uh, preserve and develop friendships and relationships that otherwise would have been lost. I'll say a little bit more about that in a while. But this is one of the great gifts, is that social media has allowed us to stay connected with people with whom otherwise we probably would have lost contact. And in that sense, it's a good gift from God for us that enables us to love our neighbour as Jesus invited us to do, commanded us to do, love our neighbour as ourselves across a wider reach. A word about the negative, though, and I think it's timely and important that we note uh, some of the major negative impacts that are occurring uh, in our world through social media. Molly Russell is a 14-year-old girl uh, who committed suicide. And uh, the inquest last month, uh, the senior coroner um, published uh, his findings into the inquiry upon her death. The NSPCC reported it this way. They said, senior coroner Andrew Walker said, material viewed by 14-year-old Molly Russell on social media shouldn't have been available for a child to see. Mr. Walker told the North London Coroner's Court she died from an act of self-harm while suffering from depression and the negative effects of online content. Social media can be deadly. 
So it can give us amazing capacities to connect and preserve, maintain, and develop relationships um, beyond our immediate locality, but it can be deadly. According to the latest statistics available, almost 4.2 billion of the world's 8 billion population are regular social media users. Isn't that extraordinary to think about? And nowadays as well, uh, most people engage on social media platforms through their phones. Uh, We don't really even need to call them smartphones anymore because it's very hard to buy a dumb phone. You know, they are just, these are ubiquitous, these devices that we have in our pocket. And of course, most of the social media platforms have optimized all of their offerings for the apps that run on these phones. And that's meant that even in pretty remote parts of the world, as long as there is um, some kind of a signal for your mobile phone and you have some way of charging it, uh, then you can uh, engage with digital communications on a global basis. Facebook is the world market leader almost 3 billion people on this planet are signed up for Facebook accounts and are actually using them. I find that extraordinary. Um, If you are a a younger adult in our congregation or one of the youth over in the vicarage, you're probably like, okay, boomer, you know, because Facebook is where your granny is, right, nowadays. And that's, that's that's kind of the truth. That's kind of how people feel. Oh, my goodness, another believe has arrived. So we've got four Believe jumpers in the house today. It's, we, we know it's Christmas when the MS Believes are in the house. Um, uh, sorry, forgive my um, distraction. What was I saying? Yes, thank you. So, um, and of course, some of this is just quite natural. People like me joined Facebook in my mid-20s. I'm now in my mid-40s because of the passage of time. And uh, when I joined Facebook, it was 20-somethings who were there, and that's all there was. But those 20-somethings became 30-somethings, became 40-somethings. When they had kids, they started posting their photos, and their parents joined Facebook so they could see the photos of the grandchildren. Right? I'm just speaking autobiographically here. Um, I've sort of walked this journey with it. The average time spent on social media platforms is around two and a half hours per day. I don't know whether you use social media platforms more or less than that. I'm significantly less than that, um, but it does give you cause to to wonder who is spending six, seven, or eight hours a day simply scrolling, posting, uh, preparing posts, or whatever it might be. The platforms and the trends, you can, you can look all this stuff up online. I find it quite interesting. As I say, Facebook users tend to be older. More women than men use it. Um, Instagram users tend to be a little bit younger. One of the things that I found really striking was uh, the complete ubiquity of YouTube. Now, YouTube is not an internet phenomenon. It's just the new TV. So uh, 95% of all 11 to 29-year-olds are using YouTube uh, regularly. So it's almost um, ubiquitous, really, in its reach. Uh, Twitter is interesting. I thought that Twitter might not be so popular amongst young people, but when I went and looked it up, actually, there's a huge surge in 18 to 25-year-olds joining Twitter and starting to use Twitter. But here's the interesting thing. Twitter has much greater penetration amongst tertiary-educated people, people who have been to university, college, or the like. It tends to be associated with people who are working in professional environments as well. Uh, All interesting. But bear in mind this. Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp... 
Facebook and Instagram are clearly social media platforms. WhatsApp is interesting because we may think of it as a messaging service, which it is, but of course, because of groups and communities, people also use it uh, a bit like social media as well, and you can post status updates and photos and share them within a particular group. But remember, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp are all owned by one company, Meta. Starting to see that name around a bit more now, aren't you, with this little sort of infinity logo, uh, Meta. Isn't that extraordinary? The global power, the global reach of one company should certainly give us cause uh, uh, for thought and consideration about the, the power dynamics and the risks associated. The digital information revolution, which is really what social media is, it's a digital information revolution. It's a way of sharing information uh, rapidly and quickly across the globe. The digital information revolution is changing the world in the same way, I believe, that the banks and the monetary system arising in the 13th and 14th centuries did, in the same way that the printing press in the 16th century did, and perhaps in the same way that birth control and the internal combustion engine did in the 20th century. I think if we look at world history, there are some key events and key moments, key developments that have just changed and revolutionized the way people live and interact and have had far-reaching impact. I think the advent of banks and money uh, emerging in um, medieval Italy and the Medicis uh, in the 13th, 14th century was one. I think the printing press uh, developing in Europe but spreading rapidly and enabling people to print and communicate uh, was one. And of course, we might say that social media is like a new printing press, only a digital version. And then I was actually mulling over the other day. Uh, did you know that if you live here in Hoxton, if you walk through Shoreditch Park, there is a commemorative bench to Dorothy Thirtle, who was one of the pioneers of modern birth control. Um, so uh, that, that part of the gardens that you, you walk over as you're walking into the main park is called the Dorothy Thirtle Garden. Well, um, Contemporary modern birth control uh, and the internal combustion engine vie, I think, for position as the most significant development of the 20th century in terms of global populations and social development. Uh, Go ponder. So how does a Christian navigate this? Well, this is really what I want to just say, give you three headings. I, I want to think about connection, comparison, and some lessons from Corinthians. So connection... Comparison, lessons from Corinthians. If you remember those three C's, that will perhaps be helpful. So the positives. We are made for connection. We're made for relationship. We're made for community. We're made for communion. Communication is the way in which we uh, invest into and make real those um, connections And we're made for connection, we're made for relationship because we are made in the image of a relational God. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God exists eternally in a perfect and beautiful relationship of loving communication between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In medieval theology, they were trying to find a term for this, uh, this dynamic relationship of love that was expressed in the Trinity. And and medieval theologians came up with the term perichoresis, which sort of means dancing around. Choresis, where we get choreography for the dancers among us. Perichoresis, dancing around, dancing together, never staying still, always communicating love one to the next, one to the two, two to the one, one to one another. 
the Greek Orthodox theologian John Zazoulis, who lived um, in the 20th century uh, and died at the beginning of the 21st, um, wrote a significant work about relational ontology. That's a long word meaning our being is expressed in relationships. Ontology is about our beingness, my amness, my what I amness, as it were. And he said that as humans made in the image of uh, a relational God, we also have a relational ontology. I am my father's son. I am my wife's husband. I am my daughter's father. I am my neighbor's friend. Who am I? I? I don't exist in a vacuum. I don't have any sense of individual autonomous self other than who I am in the relationships in which I subsist, those relationships that give my life meaning and purpose. And of course, I, my ultimate identity, I believe, is found in being an adopted child of the living God, made in the image of God, bearing his image. That's what relational ontology means. John Donne expressed it in those famous words, no man is an island, right? None of, none of us are entirely autonomous and separate. And one of the great sort of myths of contemporary society is that every single one of us has this sort of unique individual inner self that has a, a, a deep um, right to be expressed and asserted and actualized and fulfilled in the world. And, and of course, sometimes the things which are uh, not the truth, are very close to the truth. All of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's how the Bible puts it. Um, all of us are knit together in our mother's womb, Psalm 139. God knows the hairs on our head. God knows the days of our lives. We are made unique and individual, but we're not made to be individual and to exist individually. We are made for relationship because we're made in the image of a relationship, a relational God. So we find who we are in relationship with others. Relationship with others in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our place. And this can be really, really positive. Of course, sometimes it's experienced negatively. Sometimes people define ourselves together against others. We belong to, we know that people find belonging in gangs, in tribes, in ethnicities, in uh, demographies, in socioeconomic classes or cultures. We, we, we band together and sometimes define ourselves against the other. Actually, um, I should say as a little aside, uh, I went to the pub with uh, Caleb and Seth last night to watch the England game with uh, my friend Loic, who is French. And it was a lovely moment of being able to enjoy the game together uh, as an English fan and a French fan um, watching the same screen. But so often what we do is we separate into little tribes and group identities uh, that build our strength by defining ourselves against the other. But usually and often relational ontology is something positive. It's happened, Sarah. <laughs> if anyone wants to buy me a Christmas present, a new iPad would do great. <laughs> um, I, I haven't. Do you want it? Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> so, social media offers incredible connections. 
It offers us the opportunity to connect with scattered families around the world, around the globe, with old friends. It enables us to pray and to express solidarity, to encourage, to listen and to learn. And I wanted to mention just again, by by way of positive senses of connection, some of the ways that I found social media really helpful. I have a friend that I trained for ordination with. Uh, He lives up in Liverpool with his wife and his children. Um, And they have uh, some extraordinarily difficult contexts in which they live. Um, Their uh, uh, son, their teenage son, has quite severe uh, autism. And they do have an incredibly challenging uh, time. Um, but they are so joyful, they're so full of love, so full of grace, and I love that I get to pray for them every time uh, I see a post that's coming up. Uh, And so I've found social media is a really lovely way to pray for people when I hear what's going on in the world. I love to use uh, social media as a news digest. It steers me uh, towards journalism, reports or articles or blogs. And I kind of now use social media as an enormous digital address book. So one of the greatest gifts for me about my sort of Facebook and Twitter accounts is that I can, I've got all these people from 20, 25, 30 years ago that I can still connect with. And indeed, last year, uh, I had lunch with a friend of mine that I had not seen in 25 years. How good is that? It was lovely. Um, because, and we would have lost contact. We wouldn't have been in touch otherwise. But because of social media, we were able to. So... Connection. We're made for connection because we're made in the image of uh, a relational God. That was my first C. Second C, comparison. I've often said it, it's a quote attributed to Napoleon, comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison can be so destructive and damaging for us because it can send us into envy and self-pity. It can cause us to worry about how we measure up against others. One of the problems with comparison is often we are only judging things very superficially. We don't really see what's going on behind the scenes. Louise preached a few weeks ago and reminded us about trying to understand things from other people's perspectives and other narratives. What's the story behind what you see? And I think that's one of the key things whenever I find myself tempted to compare. It's just to remember, actually, you're only seeing a very partial um, part of an account on a social media post. There's another challenge, I think, about social media, uh, which sociologists who are studying this are writing about more and more, that social media is an amplifier and a disinhibitor. In fact, some people say it's a bit like alcohol. It's an amplifier in the sense that your mood and your underlying character are exposed and amplified. So if you're basically happy and at peace and at ease in the world, then probably you'll be able to engage in social media in a way that is happy and at ease and at peace. But actually, if you are struggling with resentment or anger uh, or bitterness or frustration, that will likely be amplified through your engagements on social media. One study quite a few years ago likened um, communications on uh, Twitter to being like communications after eight pints of beer. Um, They said that people will say things uh, in in digital spaces and online that they would never say face-to-face with people unless they were inebriated, unless they had broken down all of their sort of social inhibitions through alcohol use. So I think it's true that social media can lead us to say things which are less reflective, less thoughtful than we might prefer and uh, aim for. So we're made for connection, but there is the challenge of comparison. 
And into all of this, I want to just look at a few basic lessons from 1 Corinthians. So we had a passage read by Rob today from 1 Corinthians 13. It's a passage that you might be accustomed to hearing read at a wedding because it's all about the characteristics of love. And so it's very commonly read at weddings when we're thinking about um, a husband and a wife marrying and the love that they're going to express. But of course, St. Paul didn't write 1 Corinthians 13 as a reading for weddings. He wrote it as instructions about how to live in community as the church. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, St. Paul writes them about being one body with many parts, about having gifts from the Holy Spirit distributed across the whole body for the edification, the building up of the whole body. He said, you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. The Holy Spirit has distributed amongst you gifts uh, as is needed. And then in 1 Corinthians 14, he talks about how they conduct themselves when they gather together, how to worship, how to pray, how to prophesy, how to speak God's truth to one another, and about how to do that in a way which is caring and constructive. So if 1 Corinthians 12 is all about life in the body of Christ, life in the church together, and if 1 Corinthians 14 is all about life together in the church, in the community of faith. It would be really weird if 1 Corinthians 13 was just written to be read at a wedding, wouldn't it? So it's always worth going back to 1 Corinthians 13 and reading it, not uh, thinking about romantic love, but thinking about practical, day-to-day earthly love in the community. And in this context, the verses that Rob read give us some pointers to the way in which we can communicate with one another, love one another, and I think some pointers towards how we can communicate and connect through social media. Often uh, in this passage, love is described via what it's not. It's a bit like going to a doctor and ruling out different options. Love is not this, love is not that, love is not the other. And and through those sort of negatives, you're able to get a vision of what love might be. And I I want to try and summarise four things that I think Uh, Paul is pointing towards in this passage and that God is showing us about love. Firstly, love is kind. That's the uh, positive one that he begins with in verse 4. Love is kind. And I want to read to you a little bit about the significance of kindness uh, from this book. Uh, I emailed some people in our church family this week about uh, an Advent devotional that I'm reading, um, and I found this incredibly helpful. about uh, kindness. And it's a chapter about uh, the effect of kindness on a man named St. Augustine. St. Augustine was one of the great Christian theologians of uh, history and of the church, lived in the 4th and 5th century, uh, and it was really significant in um, explaining Christian faith uh, for successive generations. Um, But he became a Christian through the kindness of another man. So I'm going to read this for us. It's a little long, but I hope you'll be patient with me. It's by a a writer called Sinclair Ferguson. He says, Do you know how important one man's kindness was to Augustine? Augustine has proved to be one of the most significant thinkers in the history of the Christian church. You could fill a room with books and articles written about his thinking. Augustine's spiritual pilgrimage is fascinating. His Christian mother prayed fervently for her gifted son, but he was determined to do things his own way. He tried everything going but his final judgment on the experiment makes him sound like a member of the Rolling Stones, lamenting, I can't get no satisfaction. When you read his life story, you can readily imagine him saying, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. 
So what do you think it would take to bring this brilliant but prodigal son, hardwired to achieve fame, into the kingdom of God? One of the people who influenced him was a man internationally renowned for his oratory, the very thing Augustine craved. His name was Ambrose, and he was the Bishop of Milan. Of course, we might instinctively think it would take a superstar to make an impact on someone who wants to be a superstar. But what drove the eloquence of Ambrose was the gospel. At first, Augustine listened to him, thinking he could overlook the substance for the sake of his style. It took a little time for him to realize that in the case of Ambrose, the style was actually the fruit of the substance. And looking back, years after he had become a Christian, Augustine tells us what happened. And this is an extract from his, uh, his confessions, his sort of diary. He said, I came to Milan, to Ambrose the bishop. It was by you, Lord, that unconsciously I was led to him, so that by him I might consciously be brought to you. That man of God received me like a father. When I came, he showed me the kindness of a bishop. From that point, I found myself beginning to love him. But at first, it was not because he was a teacher of the truth. I had no expectation that I would find that in your church. It was because he was kind to me personally. I listened carefully to him when he preached to his congregation, not as I should have done, but instead assessing his eloquence to see if he really merited his reputation. And, let li- and yet, little by little, I was drawing near, quite unconsciously. Sinclair Ferguson continues and says, Ambrose was a superstar preacher, but notice what Augustine said made the significant impact on him and caused his opposition to Christ to begin to melt. Ambrose was kind to me personally. Ferguson concludes that we may not have the gifts, the eloquence, the oratory, the rhetorical skills to preach and teach and persuade people of Christian truth, but each one of us can be kind to others. So kindness. Titus 3 says, when the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. Kindness is a central virtue in 1 Corinthians 13 for how love is expressed in community. Secondly, be content. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Be content. Actually, in social media worlds and blogs and all these things, they say content is king. They say the substance of what you have, content is king. But I think contentment is king. Be content with where you are, who you are. Remember, comparison is the thief of joy. If we are experiencing discontent, if we are discontented, if we are dissatisfied, if we are feeling anxious, if we're feeling worried about how we are doing and how we're measuring up, I'd encourage you perhaps not to go and look at social media on that day, those days when that occurs Because very often that's when we're most likely to compare ourselves negatively to other people. Instead, I always counsel people to practice thanksgiving and thankfulness and to make that a spiritual discipline. To find the little things that we can give thanks to God for. So be kind, be content, do not be envious, do not boast. Be humble. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not puffed up. 
You know, one of the traps that many people fall into with social media is uh, looking for the likes, the subs, the follows, the hearts, all these different ways of getting a dopamine hit. And that's exactly what it is. It's a little dopamine hit and the neuroscientists and the psychologists are all able to tell us that when we look back and we see that we've had one more like or one more love, we're delighted and the chemicals receptors go off in our body and uh, we feel a little bit of joy, a bit like having a bit of chocolate uh, at the end of the evening. But we can become dependent, it can become addictive. So be humble, be kind, be content, be humble and be gracious. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. One of the greatest virtues that all of us as Christians um, I believe a a longing to live out and and to express more and more is forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, for one another. It's at the very heart of the Christian gospel that God forgave us in Christ and so we forgive others. And yet social media is not often a very forgiving place. It tends to be a place where judgment is um, made manifest more than grace. But St. Paul says in the community, love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. So be gracious. So I think 1 Corinthians 13 suggests to us, and I'm speeding up a little bit because we need to finish and move on, but I think 1 Corinthians 13 is about how we conduct ourselves in relationship, if, how we're going to be this connected body in the flesh, in the person, as we meet Sunday by Sunday and through the week, but also how we can conduct ourselves online in those global social connections that digital communications afford us. Be kind, be content, be humble, be gracious. If we follow these four things... I think we will express love on social media. There is also a digital charter that the Church of England have produced, which has got some really helpful comments on it as well. Uh, And uh, you can look that up by going to the Church of England website. And and that's where we as a wider church have tried to express something about how we conduct ourselves uh, online and on social media. But I want to summarise by saying the real question of how we can love well on social media is uh, how can we love one another well? wherever we may find ourselves, whether meeting face-to-face in person or whether through digital communications. And 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a vision of how we love one another. But remember that the Bible tells us first and foremost that we are only able to love because we have been loved. 1 John says we love because he first loved us. And right at this time of year, as we turn our minds towards Christmas and we look back and we remember that moment in history where God came to meet us in Jesus' son, Emmanuel, God with us. Love came down to live among us. Love came down in the flesh so that we could know what love is and who love is. God is love and those who live in love live in God and God lives in them. Ultimately, the answer to the question of how we engage on social media is that we love because he first loved us. And my burden for all of us today really is that we might be reminded and remember again that God 
loves us. Perfect.